it's the 6th of July, 2022. Now we have this opportunity to meditate, to train our minds so that they come to peace. Because the nature of these minds is that they are elements which become aware of sensory experiences. And they're constantly proliferating, and so they're not still. Our samadhi isn't firm, our mindfulness hasn't really come together, and so wisdom simply doesn't arise. And when the mind is devoid of wisdom, then, and it's always receiving these sensory experiences, um, then they of give rise to greed, hatred, and delusion. These experiences which are the basis for the arising of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the mind chases after these experiences. And so people who are really lacking in mindfulness, they're not able to control their minds. And so they're always following their emotions. And if they don't have control over their body and their speech, then that means that they don't have sila, they don't have virtue. But for those who are able to see the danger in this lack of virtue, they can come and train their minds, have this forbearance. Sometimes others shout at us, scold us, say harsh things to us, sometimes they gossip about us. But whatever the case, we forbear with that. Recollecting how the fully self-awakened Buddha in some of in his lives as a bodhisattva, that each life that he took, he trained in this forbearance, this kanti barami. There was one life as the Naga Buridatta that he developed this sila barami, his virtue. And even though he went through such torture that was uh, given to him, but he was still able to keep his precepts and virtue. There was one life when he developed this barami of kanti, of forbearance. And even though he had his flesh cut off, his ears cut off, his nose cut off, his arms and legs, uh, still, he was developing this kanti barami and had great kanti barami to the, the degree that no others could match it. And he praised this quality, this dhamma. And this shows that his mind must have been really peaceful and still at that point. So this developing of barami, it's not an easy thing. For us, when we're developing sila, we look after and restrain our acts of body and speech. No matter how greedy, how angry, how deluded we may be, we make sure that that doesn't come out through our actions of body and speech. We try to train ourselves in this way. Um, but if our samadhi is not firm, our mindfulness isn't really there with the mind, and wisdom doesn't arise. What that means is that avijja, ignorance, is arising. 
And when this is in control of the mind, then it will lead us to chaos, this avijja, this delusion. But this ignorance, it doesn't exist within trees or rivers or mountains, but it's right here within our hearts, within the hearts of all beings. So this is why we need to train our minds, why we need to develop our bharami. So a part of that is developing generosity. This too is something that we need to cultivate. And we do this little by little until our minds feel joyful in the goodness of that. And when we do this frequently, um, then this becomes kind of a kamma, which our mind is habituated to. And they become brighter, these hearts become brighter and more and more peaceful. And one of the qualities of a sotapanna, of a sri-mantra, is that of faith. Faith in building goodness, faith, faith in cultivating merit. Having a good sila constantly. So like Lady Visaka and Anandapindaka, um, that their minds were very bright and good, and they developed um, this generosity. So for us, who are generous people, we can consider ourselves as like the children or grandchildren of Lady Visaka and Anandapindaka. And if we have more energy, then we can take up this practice of sila. We keep the five precepts on normal days, and we can keep the eight precepts on the one prat, the lunar observance days. Having a sense of control over our body and our speech, training our minds. And so like how normally we eat in the evenings, but when we take this eight, these eight precepts, then we don't do that. There's eight hours during the day which we can eat, and there's uh, 16 hours that we don't eat. And then through that, the health of our body can get better. We can, for those who are overweight, can lose some weight. But this depends upon our sincerity of heart as well to be able to do this. It really requires this intent, this sincerity. And those who don't have that aren't able to keep these precepts. And then we come to practice as well. So if we have this generosity and virtue, what results from that is happiness, what we can all call heaven. But if we attach to that heaven, that's also not correct. There's people who get to this point, but get distracted and delighted. They too need to go through birth and death all over again. But the Buddha, he saw the danger in this wandering on between birth and death that goes on for such a very long time. He saw the sorrow that we experience in each life and how we've been born many, many times. And he said that the number of tears that we cry through our sadness in these lives it's more than all the water in the oceans. So we can reflect on that, just how much sadness is that? 
the sorrow that we experience from being separated from the things that we love. Or the things that we take as being me and mine, being departed from those. Or we can consider these bodies in just how many times we've had a body that has died. And all of the bones from our bodies that we've had, um, if we pile them up, they'll go higher than Mount Everest. And that's a huge amount. But because these bones decay, we don't see that. So we can see just how much suffering there is. And due to this avijja, this avijja which pushes us into becoming in birth. And then when we are born in each life, there's a sense of self, there's a me and a you. So we need to train these minds, we need to bring them to stillness so that they can gain some clarity and understanding. Because we all know already that greed, hatred and delusion, these things are no good. Harming others, this is what they cause us to do, and that's no good. But we're not able to abandon all these things yet. It's like anger, well, no one wants to be angry. When we're angry, then we suffer. No one wants to feel greed, because we suffer. When we're deluded, then we suffer. No one wants to feel that. But we attach to these things as being me, as being mine. And really, we've attached to them for a very long time already. And that's through this avijja, this ignorance. And that is what has been instructing our minds. And when our minds are lacking enough energy, then they follow this avijja, and that's all they can do, because they just don't know, they're lacking knowledge. So we need to come and train these minds. And even though that's something that's a bit difficult to do, we can still do it. We can contemplate to bring the mind to peace. Or we can watch the in and out breath, along with this word buddho, that becomes the object of our hearts. And when buddho is the focal point of the heart, then we won't be thinking about other things. When we think about buddho a lot, then buddho and the mind merge together, become one thing, and the mind turns peaceful. And then we can bring the mind to contemplate this body and see its nature of change and inconstancy, how it's stressful, how it's not self. We can see the truth of nature, how all things that are of the nature to arise are of the nature to cease. And this is what Venerable Anyakundanya heard when he listened to the Dhamma, and then he saw the Dhamma on this day of Asalaha Puja. So that shows that he'd built a lot of Bharami already to be able to listen to just that one first sermon and to see the Dhamma. But for us, we've read the Dharma a lot, we've listened to the Dharma a lot, but we don't yet see, we don't yet know. And why is that? It's because our Bharami isn't yet full. And when our Sila Bharami and our Samadhi, our mindfulness, our wisdom is not yet full, 
Well, that's when we need to put in the effort to make it full and to give rise to it. And something that we need to put effort into giving rise to, because it doesn't just happen by itself. We need to give rise to it. We need to practice. We need to put in our efforts. We need to be sincere. And if we take it for real, then we'll get there for real. And so we contemplate these bodies in order to dismantle the sense of self that we have. And how difficult is that to do? Well, we can take it in terms of external things, to give a comparison. And say that in, well, in Saraburi province, uh, there was a mountain that was high, but they went and uh, exploded that mountain, used dynamite, in order to get uh, the cement from it, a stone for cement. So this is an example that Venerable Ajahn Chah gave. He said, well, if there's a high mountain and we put our efforts into blowing that mountain up, in a hundred years it will all be gone. It will just be flat and empty, that land. And so we see, even a very high mountain, we can still dismantle that. But what about this mountain? This mountain that we take as a self, this body of ours, an attachment to it. Can we exploit that so that we can remove the sense of self from it? Because this is a really compact and hard mountain. <clears throat> and it's higher than any other mountain. It's not easy to destroy. Or we could give another comparison. An example that's easy to understand. It's like we're building a home, and that home is really beautiful. It's able to give us shelter. It's well built to the best of our ability. We've decorated it well. It's nice and cool, and we feel very at ease inside it. And we've um, built the house well. It has a kitchen, living room, bedrooms, bathrooms, even a room for meditation and chanting. Everything's complete. It's something that's really a place that's really delightful to stay in. But say we've finished that house, and then someone comes along and tells us that this house of yours is no good. You should tear this house down. So what kind of methods would that person have to use in order to convince us to dismantle our home? How difficult would it be for that person to try and convince us to do this? Would we believe what they say? So we can reflect on our own bodies, this house of a body, all the cells within it that our minds attach to attached to each and every one of them as being me, belonging to me, or this physicality and mentality. And so, how difficult would it be for someone to convince us that this isn't us, this doesn't belong to us? Would that be hard, or would it be, would it be easy to dismantle that house? 
But dismantling that external house, it's not so hard as dismantling this. It's dismantling Sakayaditi, Wichikicha, Silabhata, Barimasa. This um, self-view and skeptical doubts, attachments to rites and rituals. This is the sense of self. It's something that's far more difficult to dismantle. But if we set our hearts on it, we can do it. Whenever our barami becomes full, that's when we'll be able to take it apart. If we just carry on going. And so Ajahn Chah said that if we just keep at it and don't stop, then we'll get there all the same. We listen to the teachings and we follow them. We practice this correct path and then we'll be able to get there. It's not above our efforts, not beyond our abilities. But in the beginning, it can be a bit tough. So, for example, when our samadhi is quite good and we um, see someone who we don't like, then we're able to you know, have metta towards them as loving-kindness and feel at ease. And that's because there's this samadhi there within the heart and so wisdom is arising. But when that samadhi isn't constant and it starts to lessen, then we see that same person, that same image, but there's attachment this time. There's a sense of self there that appears. And so these old memories come up that this is someone who I don't like and that's someone who I do like. And so there's happiness and there's sadness. There's proliferation. If it's someone that we don't like, then we don't want to meet them. If it's someone that we do like, then we want to be together with them. And so there's always this sense of self there that's coming up in this state. Always this attachment. All the forms that we've seen in the past, yesterday, last week, last year, we still have a sense of self there attaching to them. But if we look in terms of science, they say that in the space of 10 years that all of the cells within a human body change. But still the mind attaches to all of them as being a self, even though there isn't really a self there. In truth, all of these cells, they are born, they get old, they get sick, and then they die. And if we have wisdom, then we'll be able to see that. The things that we don't like, well, they're not really a body, they're not really a mind. <clears throat> it's just that there's this ignorance which is conditioning our minds to give rise to liking and disliking, but that's just the work of ignorance. So therefore, the things that we like, the things that we don't like, they don't have a true self to them. The only 
thing or the thing that causes us to like and dislike is avijja. So we can see this all as dhamma. There are meritorious dhammas, there are demeritorious dhammas that appear within the mind. And these are dhammas, just the same. They're not a being, not an individual, a me or a you. But when there's this ignorance there, it attaches to these things that arise and cease as being a self, as being me and you. So we need to work to dismantle this, to take apart becoming and birth. But that depends upon our practice, depends upon our samadhi. And what we need is the kind of wisdom that arises through meditation, through bhavana. That is what allows us to see clearly. To see that all these things, they're not really there. They're just conventions. And when we see conventions in this way, then this great joy arises. can come up for three days and three nights. It's possible for it to be like that. And it's really incredible. It's something that I didn't expect to happen before. But when the Dhamma comes up, arises within oneself, this is what it's like. And so I got the feeling that I didn't want anything in this world, none of the materials, the wealth of this world, as my own. And why is that? It's because one day we all have to die. And so what's the point in getting them? We just have to leave it all behind. So there's this external wealth, and there's also internal wealth as well. And what we should be searching for is this internal wealth, that of virtue, of generosity, meditation, of samadhi. So the people who see things in this way, and they are really set on the practice, and they take nibbana as the object of their minds. They wish and they want this Nibbāna, because Nibbāna is a place where the mind is at ease and happy. There's no suffering there. It's beyond the world. It transcends the world, this world of happiness and suffering. And when we're stuck here, then we're stuck in birth and death, in a mind cycle between these two without stop. So we need to practice to get to the point where we're abiding above the world, beyond happiness and above suffering, beyond birth and above death, which means that we transcend the world, this lokutara. We need to practice, we need to contemplate to get there, so that we can see all physical and mental things as not-self. And when we can maintain our samadhi, then we'll be able to see clearly like this. A knowing becomes clear. The mind gathers together and we see the body as just a body. But the average person doesn't see things in this way. That normally we're told about not-self. <clears throat> that there's not a being, not an individual, a me or a you. And we listen to that. But it's only really when our minds come together when samadhi arises, when wisdom comes up, then we gain an actual knowledge into this. Before we saw everyone as being people, 
There were people who were speaking and listening and eating and walking around. There was just self there. But when the Dhamma arises, then we don't see them as people anymore. You give the comparison to like in this present day, how there's um, artificial intelligence. And so if there were these robots controlled by AI, walking around, running around, playing football, playing tennis, we wouldn't see them as being people. We wouldn't see them as being any beings or individuals, us or them. We'll see them as just that, just robots. And these um, biological robots. But what normally happens is that we attach to all of this as being me or being you. But we should look to see how it's not actually there. Just like robots tottering about. When we gain an understanding of the Dhamma, this is what it's like. And this is the result of the efforts that we've put in. The fruit of our um, effort is appearing. So we just carry on putting in our efforts in the Dhamma practice until we gain clarity over these bodies, clarity over all physical and mental phenomena, seeing how they're not me. And the mind becomes empty and we see Nibbāna clearly. The mind really gathers together, sila, samādhi, banya come together once again and we're able to cut away at these defilements again. So we see the Dhamma once more, and there's only one life left here. So we set our hearts on this practice now, and so that the state of the Dhamma appears. We see these bodies as being something unattractive. And normally we see them as being beautiful, but now we see them as breaking apart, as being something unattractive. All the different parts of this body are like that. You see it as just being a collection of elements and something that isn't beautiful, just earth, water, fire and air coming together. And as we carry on contemplating into the body, uh, that contemplation happens in more and more refined levels, and depending upon the energy of our mindfulness and samadhi, until we're able to abandon all attachment towards the body and the attachment that we have towards feelings, perceptions, mental formations and sense consciousness becomes less and less. We see feelings as just feelings, as perception as just perceptions, mental formations, merely mental formations, and consciousness as just consciousness. And so if our minds are imbued with wisdom, and we see everything as Dhamma, just like Venerable Ajahn Tongrat. One time he was trying to kind of get rid of the kilesas and a layperson, and because this layperson wasn't offering food on arms round. Um, but this layperson in turn abused him. But he bowed to that abuse as being Dhamma. He saw there was this anger coming up, but he was able to bow to that anger because he saw the Dhamma there within it. <clears throat> really, it's the proliferations of the mind that give rise to this, that give rise to merit and demerit, that give rise to liking and disliking. 
It's just the mind that does that. But if our minds are at peace and there's wisdom, then we see that the mind is merely the mind. When sila, samadhi and panya become full, then they govern our minds so that they don't experience suffering. So they're able to be freed from suffering. So we should all set our hearts on this. It's not outside of what we're capable of doing. If we want freedom from suffering, then we need to put our efforts into abandoning wrong views, into, into abandoning this self-view, skeptical doubt, attachments to rites and rituals. And just like that beautiful house we're dismantling. And it's not above our abilities to be able to do that. To change our minds. To change our views about this body that we take to be a self. But instead now we believe in the Buddha and the teachings of the Buddha. So we need to take apart the sense of self to see into not-self. Because the Dhamma is like this already. All things that are of the nature to arise are of the nature to cease, and this is what it's like already. And so the Buddha asked, well, physicality, mentality, is that you? And if there's a vija there within our minds, then that will tell us, well, this is me. And there was one time that I contemplated into the body and I was contemplating the blood. <clears throat> and so I once, those bloods that was taken out went to donate blood and there was about 500 cc of blood that was taken out and I was able to see that that was not me. I could understand that. <clears throat> but when I contemplated the blood that was still within the body, I just couldn't accept that that wasn't me. I just wasn't able to kind of think that or believe that. It was just me there, I couldn't accept it. And why was that? It's because there was a lack of mindfulness and samadhi. But when samadhi and mindfulness is sufficient, then wisdom can arise. And you can see that this is not me. That really, that which is outside is that which is inside. That which is in is also out. <clears throat> you can contemplate, well, the blood within our bodies and the blood within the bodies of other people, is there any difference there? These bones and the bones of others, is there any difference? But if we attach to them as being me or being you, well, who is it that says that, who makes that claim of self? Well, it's just ignorance that does that. And then ignorance is what makes the world chaotic and takes us to harm each other. But if we have Dhamma, then we're able to share our things with one another and we can stay in this world together with peace. So if wisdom arises, then we're able to see into the truth of nature, this truth of change, of stress, of not-self. And that's really how things have always been. Things are always arising, persisting and ceasing. But it's because of the delusion there that we take these things to be self. When we're born, then it's me who's born. When 
this body gets old, then it's me who gets old. And when we experience sickness, then it's me who's sick. And when we die, then I die. It just happens over and over again. But if there's Dhamma, then we see that that's not the case. It's just a bunch of elements that arise, stay for a bit, and cease. It's just liquid there, coming up, staying for a bit, and cease. And these feelings that we experience of happiness, sadness, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, we take those as being me. But we can ask ourselves, well, where are they? All those feelings that we've experienced in the past, are they here? Are they just feelings that have arisen and gone away already? But the problem is we attach to all of that, all physical and mental things. So that's why we need to train our minds. Because if we don't train them, then there will always be this attachment there. And that pushes us into becoming and birth over and over again. Like in this life, how we experience the pleasures of this life, the pains of this life, and then we die from that and get born all over again. And really, there isn't anything there. We can't take anything with us, or the wealth that we have, we have to throw that away. So we should set our hearts well on this practice, putting in our efforts, because this life we have a very good opportunity. And it's especially so for the monastics. We really need to give it our best to set our hearts, because meditation and this practice, it's the duty, it's the work of monastics. The lay people, through their faith, have made the offerings of these four requisites already. They've come to us through the Bharami of the Buddha. And that's what gives us time to practice. But for the laity who make these offerings, their time is little. They need to seek out this wealth so that they're able to live their lives. And so they can meditate, but they also need to go off to work as well. So before I ordained, when I was working, um, then I thought that if I was able to work half-time and then meditate the other half of my time, then I'd be able to do that, that would be all right. But in those days, there just wasn't half-time work like that. On certain meditation, my mind would, be, would become quite still, it would just begin to be still, and then I need to go after work again. I wasn't able to keep up that consistency in my practice. So therefore, for the monastics, we really need to set our hearts on this, because we have this great opportunity. We have this opportunity to be restrained and collected, to meditate a lot. We can decide that tonight I'm not going to sleep, I'm going to meditate all night. And we can do that because there'll be time tomorrow for us to rest. We can take up these Tudanga practices which wear away at the defilements. We can eat just the one time a day, eat everything just in our bowls. We can eat or speak little, eat little. And we need to train a lot. And train in this practice of speaking little. Because if we speak a lot, then we'll proliferate a lot. And it's these proliferations from the mind that uh, and the mind sends the order to the mouth to say these things, and that happens in just a fraction of a second. There's this proliferation there when we speak about me and mine. 
always a self, a self that arises immediately. But if we speak just a little bit, then we're able to look after our minds well. So we should really practice for the sake of freedom from suffering. We have this opportunity, really the best opportunity that we can gain in life. We're able to wear these robes, which are the banners of the Arahants. And so we should set our hearts on this practice. Because Marga and Pala, the past, the fruitions, they're not out of date. They haven't left us. They're not just things of the past. And just like how there's water in the earth, and if we dig, then we'll meet that water. We'll be able to destroy the self-view, skeptical doubts, attachments to rites and rituals, seen to the nature of arising, persisting and ceasing, just like Venerable Anyo Kandanya did on that first sermon that the Buddha gave. And that was because his barami was full already. But for us, we too can reach this point. For us, we can become awakened disciples of the Buddha in this life. And so may all of you set your hearts on this. <laughs>